it, it all, I think ultimately comes back to trying to be humble and realizing that you're just, you're a piece of this and it's a, it's a piece of you. And so don't get overly tied up into, into achieving that or, or, um, you know, reading your own press clippings. We talk about sometimes that's on front as, as, as this humility thing is, is so critical to being an effective leader. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Shakespeare once said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. While our guest, Flynn Cochran, is definitely someone who achieved greatness through hard work day in and day out, starting at an early age by just merely trying to survive as the sixth of eight kids being beat up by his older siblings and fighting for his food. Just joking. I only say that because I can personally relate to being from a big family. But Flynn is a former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, a former McKinsey & Company engagement manager, and graduate of Harvard Business School. And today, he is the chief strategy officer at Echelon Front, where he shares the exceptional leadership experience and insights he learned from both the SEAL teams and the business world. He had the benefit of experiencing leadership lessons from the likes of Leif Babin and Jocko Willink, who is a previous guest on the show back in episode number 25, and you can go check that out. And Flynn saw the power of both extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership firsthand. When I looked at Flynn's impressive resume, I see a through line of intensity from football to ROTC to the Navy SEALs to Harvard to McKinsey and to Echelon Front. And so I wanted to know what drove him. In many ways, it goes back to growing up as the sixth of eight kids. Growing up in a large family taught Flynn two huge lessons. The first is that you have to do something exceptional to get attention, and it could be good or bad. And the second is that everything is better as a team. Think about the business world today, where disengagement is rising and ultimately costing industry $500 billion annually at least. If that happened in the SEAL teams, if the SEALs showed up disengaged, missions would fail, lives would be lost, but they didn't show up disengaged because they knew what was at stake, and it was more than the mission. It was the guy to the front of them, to the back of them, to the left, and to the right of them. This is an element missing in business today, as well as in our own individual lives. We don't have a clear idea of what is at stake, why it matters, or why we should take action on it. Flynn warns that it certainly isn't easy to create an organization where everyone believes in a single unified why. But since when has doing anything worthwhile ever been easy? Going back to the idea of team unity as opposed to the pursuit of individual achievement is a great place to start. 
Building meaningful relationships with the people around you will allow you to stay more engaged because you care about how your work impacts them, and the same lesson can be applied to your life at home. Again, everything is better as a team. In fact, if you go watch the Lego movie over and over again like my my kids do, everything is awesome when you're part of a team, and all great teams need an exceptional leader. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Flynn Cochran, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Phenomenal first name. It's my last name. So, you know, we have things in common right off the bat. And uh, as we were talking before we hit record, I always kick things off with our origin story. And I've begun to use a quote to prompt the conversation. And so today for you, I picked a quote from Shakespeare. And it's, I forget which play it is actually, but it's some are born great. Some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. So when you were growing up, who was the greatest influence on you? I mean, not any surprise, but my, my father, uh, just seeing him lead my family. I'm one of eight kids. Uh, he was in the Navy 24 years uh, to see him lead the family and, and do it in conjunction with my mom. Uh, how, you know, again, think of, my dad deploying for six or seven months and, and leaving my mom with eight kids, seven boys and one girl to wrangle. Mm. Um, so just the, the, the fact that the, you know, my, my dad's mission orientation and, and him tr- pushing us and driving us uh, you know, to be successful in, in a productive way, not overly crazy because there's eight of us, uh, <laughs> was, was, was really cool. Um, and then just the expectation. Honestly, it wasn't anything specific he did. It was just the expectation that hey, we were going to do certain things in our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, you know, obviously examples of, of older brothers to look up to, but really him setting the tone, him and, you know, him and my mom setting the tone on what, you know, the standards of my family are going to be. What is an example? I mean, like one, one of the, you know, he's a, he's a great leader. He led your family. Great leadership requires making difficult decisions during challenging times, uh, often. Um, what is an example of an, something that's memorable to you that a decision your dad had to make that was challenging, that was hard, but that ultimately you reflect back on and you're like, that was a good call. The, the Navy's a pretty demanding job, especially uh, if, if you want to be a, a certain type of father, you know, primarily, you know, there engaged. And I, I didn't remember at the, I was younger, so I'm the sixth of eight, you know, so I, I wasn't, I don't remember this, this kind of decision-making process that my parents went through. But sure. you know, as, as my dad was thinking about, he was, you know, in 15 years, he had just finished his executive officer tour and he had a chance to, to take this really demanding job on another ship where he'd be deploying and um, it would be good for his career. It would probably put him on the path to commanding officer. Or there was this other job where, you know, if, if he took this, it would be, I think it was a staff job. It would be a, a, you know much better on the family. He'd be able to provide support to my mom and the family in a way. And you know, it, he he went with the uh, with the, the slightly easier job like, as far as you know career path wise. It wasn't as helpful. It probably mm-hmm. limited his, the upside of what he was going to become as far as rank wise and, and, and responsibility wise in, in the Navy. But just and as I got old, I obviously I was I was young when that happened. I got I, I understood. The complexity of that of that challenge, right? Because everyone's got an ego, and and my dad's a, again a phenomenal leader, one of the, but he didn't reach the you know admiral, the highest ranks in the navy. 
because he made some actual, you know, conscious decisions to put the family over his own career, his own ego. Uh, and that, that was just a, such a, a cool example to me um, th- that I saw that. And, and, you know, fast forward how many, ever many years, you know, 35 years, uh, my older brother, Dan, who, who uh, got picked up for me, you know, he's an F-18 pilot, test pilot, just been fun. He's had a phenomenal career, highly ranked. He's, he's, he's the captain now. He got picked up for major command, which means ultimately commanding an aircraft carrier. Wow. Right. Um, and and again, as he as he had a similar conversation with his wife, uh, ended up decided to turn down major command to to take a job that actually helped him, you know, be a, a better father and a better husband. And he's got four kids. And hmm. and just to again to see that play out thirty five years later, uh, it, it is pretty cool. And you know, it, it's it's um, yeah, that was a tough decision. I'm, I'm sure that was an incredibly hard decision for him to kind of yeah. lift career for the family. You know, it brings up a good point, you know, because I think that we are one of the the misconceptions that we have as a society is that we are one dimensional, right? That there is one best version of ourselves, and that we always have to be chasing that one best version. But we're multidimensional, right? And, I, and again, going back to when I was doing my research for you, I found an old website that you created for yourself, like an old, like, I don't even know if you, if you know it's still there. I'm not even. I'm not even sure what you're talking it's, about. I think my my wife created something. I think yeah, she bought the domain. I don't know. 10 yeah, years, years it's ago. it's it's um, and the the subtitle of it is the uh, driven by the daily challenge or something like that. Oh man, and it's like a blog, and it has like some pictures and stuff on you, and it, and it categorizes you, and it categorizes you as the fam. It has different albums: the family man, the officer, the adventurer, the athlete, right, and. It's a really good point because it's almost like a Swiss army knife in that we're multifunctional and that we're able to, we need to be able to pull out the right tool at the right time. And I going to your brother and to the example and your dad's example, that's incredibly admirable. And it's, it's, it's something that they recognize that they needed. That was the right tool at, at the right time. And if they had probably taken those, those positions, they wouldn't have been able to be fully present in that role and then then done a disservice not only to the people they were commanding but also to the family is that fair oh 100% i mean we we talk about you know the force multipliers in the military and it's the same way in the family i think my dad's decision to 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 yeah, take that different job be more present be a better example better leader to the family set those expectations i kind of started the podcast with these expectations that this is what our family's going to be like um, and here's your here's your role in it Again, I, I have, you know, I got seven siblings, and they're and they're all doing great things. Yeah. Uh, and and I, the, again, my dad could have gone on on had a tremendous career in the Navy and and become all, all sorts of other things. But at the end of the day, you know, if if his family's in shambles, if 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 he's divorced and and doesn't have um, you know the support network at home, like what did he actually accomplish? You know, and so right. this the, the long term perspective of. Uh, of 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 that, I think is is um, was really really cool, and and it's something that I've seen to be important, and and that's where a lot of you know these great, powerful, um, really smart people that I've got to know them, that they just get off balance because this is all about balance. That Swiss Army nice that you mentioned, right? It's, it's about being balanced and, yeah. and able to adjust as necessary, depending on what the mission dictates, the you know, the people you're with, and, and and being able to kind of slide up and down that scale. To be effective in all these different areas because they're they're all important 
And yeah. and um, yeah. And you have to focus on like you know wh- when you're in a mission. I mean, you've got to focus on on the doing in that very moment. Like you've got to be fully present in in that thing that you're doing because every everything depends on it. You know, if you make if you're not present, you're going to make mistakes and people's lives are going to be at risk. Mm-hmm. Which which is the same thing in business and and and, and whether we're on the battlefield like actual taking on combat or the battlefield of life or across the boardroom. It's something that we have to be fully present for and not while also not losing sight of who we are becoming. You know, I think that we as a society often don't we forget to integrate the two. You use the word balance, but like Jeff Bezos has this kind of circle Mm -hmm. and people think of balance and the becoming and doing as separately uh, separate items, but they're really Tied together, they're, they're, they can happen simultaneously. You mentioned that you were uh, one of uh, your number six of eight kids. Yeah, we're named yeah. we're named we're named alphabetically. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm yeah, that's funny. So I'm F. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm you know I'm I'm the second of six kids. So we both come from big families, and we both know what it's like to uh, have to you know fight for survival. Mm-hmm. What uh, what is the the Biggest lesson that you've learned being the youngest of, of or second youngest of of eight that you've carried with you throughout your your life. There's really two. I think two things. One, um, I learned early on that you had to do something exceptional to get attention. And uh, you know, as any kid, I wanted attention. I was a middle child. I was starved of attention, and I went about it actually the wrong way when I was younger. You know, doing mm-hmm. stupid things to get attention. You know, breaking the rules. Uh, and, and I realized that at some point I, I matured a bit, you know, um, we're going into high school. I realized that actually the attention is better if you do good things. And so I started to do better things, better in school. And, you know, and sports was always kind of there. Um, so, you know, that was one piece. The other piece was everything's better in the team. And I, I just, I did, I was born again, you could from the womb to, to wherever, like there. I've been part of a team my whole life. Everything that that I've truly valued is, is with someone else. There's an element around sacrifice, which makes it special and powerful. Uh, individual achievements are, you know, just that individual, as opposed to bringing up the rest of the team. And so, the, just the 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 just how how critical and how much better things are as a team, as opposed to you know the the lone wolf. Uh, I think it, for me has been a real real cool lesson. You know, you you mentioned sports, and and I read this article uh, that was highlighting you in the Seattle Seattle Times or something back in your high school football days when yeah. you were kicking back ass in the day, back yeah. in the day, kicking <laughs> ass and taking names. And uh, one of the things you said is at the end of the article, the the Huskies offered you or were going to offer you a baseball scholarship, and but you could go to this division. Two school or three school and, three play, school, yeah. and play football, and you preferred that because of the intensity, you know, mm-hmm. which I, I totally relate to because I was a football player and I just love yeah. the pace and the intensity and just the physical nature of of football. But I think there's more to it, and there's more to uh, just wanting to get physical and crush things, you know, and and um, and the accolades that go along with playing football and the enthusiasm, but what, what drives your intensity? Because it, it, it's a through line that isn't, doesn't just stop on the playing field of sports. It, it's run through your whole entire life 
from the time that you went to to college and the ROTC program there, to the SEAL teams, to Harvard, to McKinsey, and now Echelon Front. So what drives your intensity for victory and for winning? You know, again, at a young age, as you know, you you had to compete for everything. Whether it was attention to your parents or even food at the table, right? Like you, you yeah. when I when I went through the the food line to to dish up my plate, I I dished up enough that I know I'd be full on because I knew that, you know going back I might not get seconds. And so there was all it, it was it was growing up in a very competitive environment, but then also loving the competition. You know, I, I, we, we competed at everything, uh, and so just in being being in that situation where you were challenged in every 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 aspect. And and um, sometimes failing or failing a lot, and getting again. That's with five older brothers. I I lost a whole lot growing up, but it never dissuaded me from trying. I always yeah. thought I could do better. I always thought I I, I could win. Um, and I had fleeting moments of, of beating the older brothers, and that usually ended up me getting like pounded on the ground or a a, a ping pong you know paddle thrown at me. <laughs> they um, were your early SEAL instructors. Oh, for sure, for <laughs> sure. And so I think it was the combination of just just loving the the competitive environment. Uh, and then just just the, the broader just challenge, right? Just always challenge myself for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like what's next um, type type atmosphere uh, idea or mindset of, of there's always something else out there to get better at, to improve at, to to test yourself in certain areas that you might not have. Mm-hmm. What is it? Okay, check. What's next? You know that that's kind of been that, that that for me has been the kind of the biggest takeaway. So what what. Ultimately, it led to you joining the SEAL teams. Was it because that was the tip of the spear, most competitive place, or the best of the best, or what? What was the driving force behind that? There's a couple of things. I uh, I actually didn't want to go into the Navy. Um, I both my grandfather's career Navy, my dad was career Navy. Four of my brothers, naval officers. Like again, as as the middle child, like I want, I want to differentiate myself and do something different. And uh, you know, I, I took the ROTC scholarship because, on the other hand. My dad was a naval officer, and there's eight kids, and it's it's sending eight kids to school is is nearly impossible unless you know you're independently wealthy, which which we weren't um, by any means. So uh, it was it was kind of a utilitarian way of of going to college. I, I, my, the initial thought was just to take the, the the scholarship, and the way the ROTC scholarship works, you guess you get a, a year for free, kind of like a trial period. So I was going to think of our year. I was going to go serve a mission for my church for two years, come back, and then not do it. Um, Hmm. On my mission, two things happened. One, I grew up a lot on, on uh, just as a, as a as a man, uh, and just had a better perspective of of what it what I wanted to be. And then two, I reflected a lot on the stories my grandfathers told me about when they were in World War II or in the in the in when they were in the Navy and and how they viewed those years of service with a certain amount of reverence. Right and then how it was just the greatest time in their life and and some of the stories my dad told me also and so as I came back I decided that I would stay with the ROTC program and I would, I would join the Navy and I would you know do four four or five years and, and kind of get out um, and and as I uh, deployed to my ship so I I, when I graduated college oh four deployed um, in oh five oh six to the North Arabian Gulf we were doing some oil platform defense I was on a destroyer you know so we were sitting off the coast of Iraq and I remember one night. Kind of, kind of vividly, I was up on the bridge wing, standing watch, uh, you know, uh, up on the cordic, kind of driving the ship around, and I just, just felt like, you know, there was more for me out there. There's more I could be doing to, to, to because my my generation's war was happening literally ten miles from where I was sitting, 
mm-hmm. in a very comfortable position, eating you know three four meals a day, air conditioning, you know, contributing to the war, but not in a way that I felt I could stack up against how my grandfathers contributed and mm-hmm. how my how my dad contributed to, you know, in Vietnam and and some of what my brothers were doing, flying you know stories over Afghanistan, dropping bombs as F eighteen pilots. And so there's some element around you know I want my when I'm 70 and 80 talking to my grandkids. I want to view my service in the same way that my grandfathers did. Mm. And so that was kind of the driving force. I mean, you know what? There's more. That was one big piece of it. The other piece was, again, going back to the early company, there was a challenge, right? There was a a challenge of of knowing, can I make it through SEAL training? Can I make it through BUDS? What's going to happen when when bolts are flying? Am I going to shirk? Am I going to run away? Or how Mm. am I going to respond to it? Mm. You know, some sort of the competition and there's just the challenge again. What was a theme of what kind of drove me to to the teams? Did you ever doubt yourself during the the process of going through SEAL training, BUDS, SEAL qualification, anything? Yeah, yeah no, I mean the, the training is designed to do that. I mean everything mm-hmm. they do is is designed to do that. They take you know Olympic athletes and put them through the same training as someone who sat on their couch playing Call of Duty and an eighteen year old kid who just wanted to, thought it was awesome to be a SEAL and, and wanted to try out. Um, so I mean the the training. Takes you past all those physical limitations. So at the end of the day, you know everyone's going to doubt themselves in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, there were there were definitely doubts. It was some some of the underwater swim stuff. We had to hold your breath. I was kind of I was I was worried about. And, you know, then obviously how weak just that challenge there of right. of, of being cold and 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 I'm sure you've had other guys talk about that uh, on the podcast. But but again, it's just yeah, there was absolutely doubt. Um, kind of what got me through it was was literally thinking about if I if I quit. I've got to go home and then I got to make a couple phone calls. I'm going to call my, my dad. Uh, I'm going to call my brothers and kind of tell them you know, what happened. And they'll say, Hey, what happened? Well, I, I, I quit. Why'd you quit? Well, I, I don't know. I was cold. I was tired. You know, I was, I, I didn't think I could do like that. Mm. I, mm. I wasn't going to have that conversation, right? Yeah. Like, I just, I, I wasn't going to do that. And so, you know, those doubts, you know, pretty quickly yeah. went away when I'm like, you know, the, the, I'm not going to allow this, you know, little moment I'm in because because mm-hmm. because buds and the seal training is a bunch of little terrible moments that you get through, right? And mm-hmm. they all they all change, and then mm-hmm. it, it, the the what is terrible changes, you know, over time. So just wait for something else because right. inevitably it's going to get through, and you're <laughs> going to go to the next thing, right? So it, it, just be a little patient. Anyway, so that that kind of thought of of uh, you know, and this I I mean I can remember, I can remember it was like Monday night of Hell Week where we had just saluted the sun good night as we did as the instructors made us sing a song good night sun whatever it was and then they sent us back out in the water i'm like dude i don't know if i want to do this <laughs> i don't know <laughs> if i can do this and again that 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 thought of you know i'm not gonna i i'm not gonna make those phone calls and and that's not gonna happen what and honestly once i got through that once i once i got mm-hmm. through that little moment and in, in the water sitting in the water freezing and making that decision there was it was it was like no factor after that. What was the, you know, there's, there's been, there's a saying that I forget which Navy SEAL said it, but maybe it was David Goggins that when you feel like you're about tapped out, you've got 40% more left in you. You know, you've got more left in the tank to give or something, something along those lines. For sure. Yeah. No, for yeah. Sure. I, and I learned that very early on. I, I did the mini buds program in college where it's kind of, a, you get a couple weeks of buds between your junior and senior year. I don't know if it's 40%. It might be a hundred percent. It might be five hundred percent. I I don't know because mm-hmm. I've never actually gotten there, right? I've right. never, you know. Someone said, "How far can you swim?" I don't know. <laughs> I, I would think forever, but you yeah. know. But but you know, obviously that's not the case. Eventually, you know. But but like that's that's kind of the mindset. Right. There, 
there's always more in there. What's the, um, what's our the most, mind, our, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, what's the most surprising thing you learned about yourself in that process and, and what you're, you were capable of? I mean, I think, I mean, just, just how, how incredible the human body actually is and what limitations our minds put on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it gets, so much of it is, is, and I, and I, even, even now like doing, go do bench press. And if you say, I'm going to do three sets of 10, like your, your body starts burning at 10. But if you would have told yourself at the start of that set, you know, I'm going to do three sets of 15, you could have done 15 and your body would just say, I, I, just accept it. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's just some element around our, our minds have, have uh, are, are severely limit our body. And if, and if you can, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, yeah, uh, that, that our minds actually can control the body. We actually control the body. If, if, if you, you know, have the right mindset and if, if you push yourself in the right way and if you set the right goals, um, you're just so much more capable. So, I mean, I think that was it. Just you know, our bodies are the human being, you know, the, the human body is just an incredible, incredible thing that is, is severely undertapped in, in so many ways. And I think that that, those limitations, those self-limiting beliefs that we're, you know, that we're only going to be able to do the three sets of 10 also translate into business and the rest of our life. And you probably saw it when you were working with McKinsey, where you, you, we're consulting with these big global institutions, well-known brands that that were encountering these problems, whether it's shareholder value or whatever, and they're they're they don't think they can do it. And so they bring people like you in to coach them through the process and to get them to think differently and ultimately see a see a path. What was the the greatest insight you learned as as a part of McKinsey and, and being part of that organization and the challenges that these huge corporations face as it relates to the goals that they've set out to accomplish in their own limiting beliefs. Yeah, I was really fortunate to, to get a job at McKinsey um, coming out of business school, and and I took it for kind of for granted. I, I didn't, I had no idea how how hard it was to get there. I, you know, I was in the teams, and I I went to business school for a couple months, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go work at McKinsey. So I and, I and I got you know I got picked up for it. And I had hindsight once i got to mckinsey and started getting involved with like the recruiting process i'm like wow i got i must have slipped through the cracks because i (laughs) I, it's hard to get a job here right so i i just you know total total you know naive when you know when it it came to that Mm -hmm. um but i think the for me uh learned a lot at mckinsey i think from you know the organizational perspective there's some aspect around um you know, they would bring us in to help solve specific challenges and specific problems and stuff they didn't have, you know, internal expertise in. And and again, McKinsey has incredibly smart people that that have been that have worked in industries and functions for years and years and like real true experts in how to do things. But the solutions we came up with were not something that that the client it could have done. I mean, if, if the client would have if taken a step back and and number one detached, we talk about this in national and front. But I mean, when when it comes to identifying what's going to have the most impact on a on a on a, a situation, whether it's a tough situation or uh, you know market opportunity, you got to emotionally detach. You got to emotionally detach from, from 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 what's going on. Identify what needs to happen to to reach these specific goals, and then literally pick the one thing that's going to have the most impact and and, and go do that. Once you complete that, go to the next thing, back and forth. So there's some element around detaching yourself from from the challenges you face specifically and emotionally detached, obviously not mentally, but emotionally detached from it. Mm-hmm. List out what needs to happen to, in order to achieve success 
and then create a program around it that 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 aligns the organization towards that one goal in in a, in a way that that makes sense. And so it, it was it was really cool to see organizations that took that on board and and, and were able to, to to implement. And then and sometimes you know you provide solutions and and you can only do do so much as an external consultant, right? You're providing a, a solution and a recommendation. You're never actually making a decision and 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 following through with the implementation. Um, and so that was a challenge. Do you guys ever encounter? I had a guy recently on um, the show named Rick Miller who wrote a book called Be Chief. He's the former AT and T global president. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the he quoted a a statistic from Pew that that Pew did that seventy percent of people show up disengaged. And it's ultimately costing when seventy percent of the workforce shows up disengaged, and it's ultimately costing industry five hundred billion dollars a year. You know, yeah, and, and that, which is insane, right? And if that happened in the teams, you know, seventy percent of your teammates showed up disengaged. I mean, people would lives would just. I mean, the, the missions would fail, lives would you know be lost, and everything would fall apart. But Pete, the reason why people don't show up disengaged is because in the teams and in the military situations is largely because they understand what's at stake, right? They understand mm-hmm. there, there's a lot at stake, not just the mission, but the person next to them. And I think that that is an element that's missing in business mm-hmm. and as well as in our own individual lives is that we don't know what's at stake. We don't have a clear idea of What's at stake and what matters and why we should take action on it. So, so how how would you? And I know you guys do this at Echelon Front. How would you guys coach leaders of organizations or individuals to help people develop an understanding of what's at stake? I had a uh, another kind of vivid moment when I was on my. I think it was a third. It was my third engagement at McKinsey. So I'd been there, you know, four, five, six months, something like that. And I was I was coming from the hotel. I was driving to the client site, and they had a big parking garage. And I was I had something else in the morning, so I got there a little bit later in the morning, and it was kind of full. And so it took I don't know. You're driving this parking garage for like four or five minutes, and just doing loop and loop and loop, and going higher and higher and higher. I'm looking at all these vehicles, and just came to the realization that man, it is it's hard. It's really really hard to create an organization that everyone believes in. The why, and it's not just a job. And so it was just—it was just a feeling of man. These people do this every day. It must just—you can see them walking to their to their offices. That's just this is literally just a way to to get a paycheck, mm-hmm. um, and, and or a stepping stone. But but no one really believes in the overall mission. And I'm not saying you know every organization doesn't have this tremendous altruistic you know mission. Like uh, I I realized quickly that you know coming from the SEAL teams that. That mission, that broader mission, actually kind of goes away. And, and at, at business schools, I was thinking about what I wanted to do. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe go back to the SEAL teams because that, that's a mission I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but 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 as I as I as I kind of overcame that initial thought of a man, it's it's once you have a parking garage, there's there's no way to have an organization where people actually care about what they're doing. Mm. I realized that it's not it's not always about the broader mission. It's not always about the 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 the, the um, you know, winning a war on on terror because because honestly, in the teams in the platoon, you didn't talk a whole lot about hey we're you know we're 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 saving the world. Like, we didn't talk about that. What we talked about what made us get get up every day and work hard was the guy next to us. That's mm-hmm. what got us 
fired up. And that's, that's what our motivation was. Yeah. Granted, yes, we did have a good starting point of, um, you know, going out and, 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 and protecting our country. That's, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Don't get me wrong, but that, that's not what drove us to be successful. That's not what drove the teamwork and the love and the camaraderie and the excitement to, to do what we did. It was the people around us. Mm. Right? And so that mindset of, of finding ways to get those to people to, to, to build those relationships that are meaningful that ultimately allow for that sacrifice. And again, it goes back a little bit to, you know, my initial comment of, of everything's better as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's better as a team. And so finding ways to have, you know, many teams, which, which most organizations are, but making those meaningful mm-hmm. and making their con- contribution meaningful and tying it to something bigger. That's, that's how you get organizations to, to large organizations to, to, to get behind a mission and to continue to improve and adapt uh, and evolve in a way that 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 um, you know ultimately leads to organizational success. Mm-hmm. Let's riff on that a little bit longer because I think it's really an, an opportunity for people to develop some insight. Because using that parking garage company as an example, you've got these people that go to work every day. They spend eight ten hours together. Uh, maybe you know maybe they share an office, in whatever. <laughs> but they're largely strangers at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. They don't really know each other. And when you all show up and when, when people show up at, at, in a military situation or, at, or for training or in the SEALs case for BUDS, you're all a bunch of strangers largely as well. But then you're like put through this crucible and you're forged by fire and you ultimately have this shared experience of suffering and coming out on the other end victorious and persevering that, that binds you. And that develops that bond so that you can look at that person next to you and say, I got you, you know? But I, I think that that is something that's lacking in, in corporate America and, and even in just, you know, communities around the world, whether like small, you know, microcosms of community. So how can that kind of camaraderie, you know, without having to go through yeah. a war or buds or something be developed? It's hard, and there, and there's there's no shortcut unless you want to put your whole team through buds, which I don't recommend. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's not something that that you, you can do in a weekend or a night or even probably in a year. Mm-hmm. But but you build that camaraderie, that trust, that that brotherhood, sisterhood through going through tough things, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, and so you know, and I'm not saying artificially. The idea here is not to artificially create tough things that your teams need to go through so that they bond, but mm-hmm. finding you know ways of pushing them, to, to pushing them in, 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 a, in a constructive way that that relies that, that that forces them to rely on each other to be successful. Because mm-hmm. that's what it, it, it's a, it's about. You know, from from day one of of the SEAL training, everything was in a team. Like you were always in a boat crew, and you and you won or lost as a boat crew. There was there were very few individual competitions, mm-hmm. and there's very few individual competitions in corporate America. Everyone works mm-hmm. in some sort of team, mm-hmm. and so if you're struggling with with getting that buy-in, with getting that 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 uh, um, you know excitement to get to work, you know, find ways for for teams or or blow up a team to to make it so that people actually have to collaborate. People actually have to rely on each other. Uh, that their job is 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 incumbent upon someone else doing their job, and mm-hmm. as people deliver on that, that's actually how relationships are built. You know, I mm-hmm. used to think it was funny because I 
at McKinsey, one of the first things you talk about, hey, we want to be a client counselor and you want to build relationships with them. And I was like, well, like, and, the, and that's kind of the, the standard, the standard response was like, you know, how do you build relationships? Oh, take them to lunch, take your client to lunch, which is, which is good. Don't get me, like, taking your client to lunch is a good thing. You get to learn about them. And that's awesome. Um, but if you really want to build a relationship, provide something of value to that person. Right, mm-hmm. go out of your way to provide something of value, or or sacrifice something of of your own to support that person. Provide mm-hmm. them some resources. That's and that that establishes relationships much more quickly than mm-hmm. than lunch. Give me wrong again, again. Like lunch is a good thing. I'm not saying don't <laughs> don't don't get to know someone. Yeah, but if you really want to build a relationship, yeah. provide something of that. Find a way proactively provide something of value to them. Everybody is taking that that prospective client to lunch, including yourself. You know, so it's like if you yeah. Yeah, if you want to differentiate, you know, you've got to do something that really elevates you. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation, from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. I'm wondering, like, at McKinsey, did you experience because you know it's a huge company, and did you experience a real team approach where you had that kind of camaraderie where there was this sense of you know I've got your back to the person next to you? Yeah, to to some extent, right? I mean, the, the McKinsey work really you know no surprise you work really long hours, McKinsey, and and mm. and the way the, the reason McKinsey delivers. Uh, value so quickly is not always just because you have smart people. Like we're work, we're working twice as much <laughs> typically as as the clients we work for, right? I mean, they they knock out at five o'clock and we're going to go another seven eight hours. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of that, that, that's 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 the way it is. So a lot of it's brute force. And so yeah, and, and, you know, on those late nights in the team room when you're getting ready for the a steering committee deck or some some big presentation, yeah, there's absolutely like this this sucks and it kind of gets funny. Because it mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is we. Mm-hmm. Oh, surprise, surprise, we're here again. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so there is some element of going through tough things as a team that you build that camaraderie. Unfortunately, you know the, the projects are kind of short, and the teams kind of switch on a frequent basis. So you that that you don't have the chance to really go, you know, as deep because mm-hmm. of just mm-hmm. the nature of the project based mm-hmm. work we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 as I. I as I looked at my 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 future and kind of what I wanted in my career, I I viewed the partners at McKinsey and, and a lot of them were again great people uh, who who made an investment in me and and who um, you know mentors of mine, but they were at the end of the day they were kind of lone wolves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean they kind of had their own they kind of had their own deal going on whether it was a specific niche in a practice or a knowledge area or expertise. And you know they had multiple teams, and so it was a bit of a a lone wolf concept that I, mm-hmm. I said, you know what, that's probably not where I want to go long term. Um, but yeah, you know there there was again, kind of getting back to the question, there was there was absolutely some of that uh, camaraderie. It was just it was just a little different, um, and it didn't go as deep. 
You mentioned uh, that you know late nights in the in the team room doing putting your decks together, and that it would kind of get funny. And it, it makes me think that like one common thing that I've that, that's depicted in the movies, and even in my conversations that I've had with other elite special operators, that humor ends up becoming a very important part of the team relationship, and for both during, for both hard, facing hard challenges, but also celebrating success. So what role has having fun played in your own journey? Yeah, man. The, uh, if, I mean, if you're not having fun, then you, you probably got to just take a step back and look at the mirror. <laughs> there, there's always something funny going on. And, and this came, this came like really clear to me when I was like a 16-year-old kid. Uh, I did this. And the first time I really actually saw this principle in action is I did this, um, and I'm a member of the uh, LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormon. And one of the things they were, they were piloting this program called the, the Pioneer Trek for these teens, for, like, for, for the, the kind of the youth group. And we were the first, we were, the, we were the, like the pilot group for this. And like day one of this trek, you're literally like pioneers of old times with hand carts pushing them you know, across the plains and over mountains and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to make this like a really horrible... Uh, you know, a, a challenging situation, which, the, you know, the pioneers who came across the country faced, you know? So we, uh, they didn't like, we had breakfast in the morning, but hadn't been fed all day. And then we, we, the last like three hours of it, we were literally going up this mountain, mountainside on this mountain trail. And in the way the hand carts work is you have this big cart and it had the yoke, right? So normally right. You, you would put on a, like attach an oxen to it, but we didn't yeah. have oxen, right? We had, <laughs> you had me, Flynn. <laughs> we had me, me and this other dude, right? And we were in the yoke. You know, like it was called in the yoke. Like we were in the yoke, like doing most of the work and, all, and we had, we had you know, old girls with us and stuff. So they were kind of pushing a little bit on the back, but like me and this dude were in the yoke. And just looking at each other like, this is like the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> and we were dying laughing, right? Because it was so awful that it was oh just hilarious, God. right? I can't believe we're going through this. And because of that, right? Because I had someone, not one suffering next to me. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is definitely the, the way to go through tough times is to, you know, to suffer mm. with someone next to you. And just it, it just, it was so bad. It was hilarious. And that happened over and over and over again in SEAL training and in the platoons when you're Sitting on a bluff, uh, you know, in, in, in the middle of California, and it's you know, you think you know, Eastern California is not very warm, especially at yeah, night. Right. Anyway, and you're, and then you got forty mile an hour wind whipping through you. You're doing this, <laughs> you're like, you're literally shaking violently. You're looking at like, I can't believe we're out here doing this right now. No, but yeah, that's just the yeah. mindset. It was just fun. And I remember um, a story Jocko tells. I can't remember who was in the book or or if he told it because I had him on the show back at episode like twenty nine or something, twenty five. Mm-hmm. I think it like it was he and Leif or he and someone were out in the woods and doing like a snow mission and they ended up doing burpees, you know, like in the snow just to stay awake and keep themselves oh, yeah. warm. I mean, like that's just gnarly. Dude, when I when I was in Iceland, as a as a, you know, I wasn't a SEAL, I was a missionary for my church. Dude, like we were out knocking on doors all day. And oh my gosh. Iceland, you, you hear Iceland, you know, people think, oh well. Iceland's green or Greenland's ice and Iceland's green. That's not always the case, man. It's cold in Iceland. <laughs> and I got there, I got there uh, the worst winter in 50, like my, I showed up December 13th and then it was like the start of the worst winter in 50 years mm-hmm, in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And, that, and that's legit. I mean, we're talking about not the worst winter in Seattle where I live now. That's like, yeah. okay, no factor. This is Iceland. And 
dude, I, for, for sure. Like we would be knocking on doors and your hands would go numb and, and then we'd, all right, let's do some sprints. And we would sprint up and down. <laughs> we really sprint up at the, uh, these two Mormon missionaries in <laughs> jackets sprinting up and down the street to try to warm up and then go knock on some more doors, man. That's so, yeah, hilarious. That's you, hilarious. Uh, you have to find ways to, to number one, have fun with it too also get warm. <laughs> I want I want to go back to the the idea of balance and and integrating, you know, doing and becoming and achieving and and the pursuit of greatness and I read this uh, a brief excerpt of an an honoring that you gave to one of your fallen brothers um who was killed in Afghanistan in a helicopter or I think when one of the helicopters was uh, shot down. And at the end of the quote you said and I'm going to paraphrase, but basically that he just wasn't a Navy SEAL. He embodied what a Navy SEAL should be or could be, you know? So, so he didn't necessarily let the achievement of becoming a Navy SEAL define who he is. Right. And I think that that's a very big risk that we all face, whether it's getting into Harvard, whether it's getting into McKinsey, whether it's becoming an Olympic athlete, whether it's launching a great podcast or writing a book or whatever it is, we we get to we it's very tempting to allow our achievements to define who we are, and I think it's a dangerous uh, trick that our brain wants to play on us. So how can we develop the self awareness to make sure that we are pursuing our achievements, but also not letting them define who we are becoming? Yeah, I mean, talking about Brendan Looney, uh, yes, yes, who was who was uh, you know, my best best friend in the SEAL teams. Died in a helicopter crash. Uh, you know, one of, one of his last last op, uh, one of his last operations. You know, turnover operation uh, to Afghanistan back in back in 2010. Actually, a week September 21st. Mm. Um, and yeah, I remember writing that because I was I would you know re- reflecting on who he was and and for most people, a lot of people, you know, like. Again, being a Navy SEAL is kind of what defines who they are the rest of their lives. You know, that's a, who they'll always be. Or, or you know, at McKinsey, um, a lot of people who who grow up in that area or or in that in that you know, with that mindset of of hey, you know, McKinsey's the, the top company. If I can just be a McKinsey consultant, my life will be made. If if I can just do that, and and that kind of defines who they are. And um, and and it was it was really clear to me. It was really clear to me when I was at McKinsey, especially as I was, you know, you 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 do these initial kind of team meetings as you get to as you form up a team, you talk through kind of your norms and who you are and what you want to get out of the study. And I always said that type of stuff. I, I or that type. I always I always said, hey, you know, I um, been fortunate to, to be a part of some really cool organizations, uh, McKinsey being one of them. But but this doesn't none of these things define who I am, right? They're all a piece of me and they're really important and I'm proud to be a part of these things, but that's not defined who I am. I'm, I'm much more, I'm, you know, number one, I'm a husband. Number two, I'm a father. After that, like McKinsey, SEAL, that, that stuff comes later on. But, but mm-hmm. those are the two things that are important to me. Um, and, and if I'm failing in, in those two areas, then I'm going to have to reset, mm. reset what, what, where my, you know, where my time is being spent. And, and so it, it's, it's some, it's some piece, because if, if you, if you tie all your worth to specific achievements or specific accolades or specific groups that you try to get a, a part of and you don't get there, like how do you how do you you know pick yourself up? And granted, I, I'm 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 fortunate that I I've been I've been fortunate I haven't had to uh, you know I I've, I've been able to 
achieve what I set out to achieve. So I haven't had this, you know, massive failure mm-hmm. um, that I know a lot of entrepreneurs have. Like that's actually where they, you know, most entrepreneurs fail the first time at least mm-hmm. um, and, and go on from there. But so I haven't had that experience, but none of these things that I've been able to do, you know, to define who I am, it's, it's a part of who I am, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it, it all, I think ultimately comes back to trying to be, humble and realizing that you're just you're a piece of this and mm-hmm. it's a it's a piece of you and so don't get overly tied up into, into achieving that or um you know reading your own press clippings we talk about sometimes that's on front as, as as this humility thing is is so critical to being an effective leader mm-hmm. um and so mm-hmm. you know and i'm at yeah what what gets you most pumped up about being at Echelon Front? I mean, now that you you know you've you've gone from the SEAL teams, you went to Harvard, you McKinsey, and now you're at this, you're kind of like in this uh, convergence of all of these things and bringing that out into the world. What gets you pumped up about that? It's it's seeing lead, the, the the blinders come off of leaders, um, the the blinders to what again some of, some of what we talked about the the limitations that your mind puts on your body it also puts on your ability to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, because you get so caught up in day to day stuff and, and and other things, and you you, you cast blame, you don't t- you know get taking ownership and and um, you know just to see the the leaders blinders come off on actually how what's the right way to lead and what's the right mm-hmm. way to 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 motivate, inspire, and and, and take an organization um, to to levels they haven't seen before. So that, that's 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 the coolest thing that we get to, that that I get to see. Also, I get. To, I mean, I, I get to do it alongside you know my brothers that I serve with in the SEAL teams and, yeah. uh, and, and some other uh, you know. So that's that having that camaraderie, that that common experience, um, which is really really cool. I didn't think I would find that type of trust, that type of relationship outside of the SEAL teams. Uh, and, and I guess technically, it's it's not really because most of the guys are SEALs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 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 having that relationship and and, and those type of uh, bonds, you know, you know. In a, in a in a in a way that that is more sustainable from a you know lifestyle and travel not deploying we travel yeah. a ton but not not deploying for six seven months at a time uh, more sustainable from a family perspective mm-hmm. is really, really cool but yeah but fundamentally it comes back to seeing leaders take the blinders off and 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 take the organizations to heights they haven't seen and, and really realize that that their influence their actions can have a massive impact on mm. on where it goes. Has there been a moment in particular where you're like, "Wow, we have a really cool opportunity here"? Um, well, we you know we work with we work with every industry, right? Every industry, mm-hmm. kind of everything, and kind of every function. Um, I think it's been been cool working with um, just recently working with this managing director of a, a managing director of a private equity firm, like a very successful private equity firm, and and it's not that's not. We don't always, you know, work with private equity firm, but but it, it, this this guy reached out. He he aligned with the the kind of the principles of extreme ownership, which we teach, and just just to see kind of the growth we of 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 again taking the blinders off of of you know ultimately what made him successful mm-hmm. to this point was mm-hmm. being a great great investor, mm-hmm. a, a great investor, mm-hmm. um, having tremendous returns, and so he promoted up through the ranks, and now he's one of the, the managing directors of this you know this big billion couple billion dollar fun mm-hmm. but realizing that you know and having him come to realization that the things that made him successful to get to this point are not going to make him successful going forward but mm-hmm. they, 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 there are some fundamental there's a rubber meets the road investments make sense and you have to be a good investor but if he really wants to have again the impact and 
uh, grow in the way that he wants to. He needs to actually grow as a leader. And then mm-hmm. then kind of going through in detail of what specific actions he can take to become a better leader, to build better relationships across the other managing directors, to, to develop his subordinates so that he actually works himself out of a job and, and has more time to free up and actually think about up and out about where the, the firm should be going. Mm. Um, mm. Again, I mean, it's not that this managing director who's, you know, literally a genius who has, you know, went to all the right schools and has all the right pedigree and then a bit of an underdog from some aspects, but, but just, just the fact that the, we're able to take these leadership combat leadership principles that we learn mm. and apply it to his world, which mm-hmm. is, which is, you know, combat in its own own right. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. high, highly, yeah. highly competitive. Yeah. But you apply these principles to what he's got going on mm. and they work equally the same. Like just, Powerful. You know, and, and that's yeah. just been really cool to see mm-hmm. um, because honestly, I came over and I wasn't a hundred percent, you know, again, I was, a, I was a platoon commander in the SEAL teams. I got taught these, these, these extreme ownership leadership principles. I was one of the guinea pigs of, of mm-hmm. for, for these things coming up. I was, <laughs> I was one of the first platoon commanders to, or one of the first junior officers to be put through this training that, that Leif and Jocko put together. Um, and, and it worked in a combat leadership perspective. And, and again, I, again, as I moved over and I obviously stay close to, um, stayed close to these guys, mm-hmm. but as I, you know, as I moved over um, to Echelon Front, there's like some aspect. You know, I'm not sure if these principles apply everywhere. You know, I, I was at McKinsey and, and these things. You know, I'm not sure if it'll work there. And and now that I've actually fully understand what these principles are, there's there's no question in my mind. And that was yeah. just just very clear with this managing director who is at the upper echelon of of our of our you know whether it's socioeconomic, you know, he's he, uh, of this um. That that they apply to him, mm-hmm. you know, just as much as, as well. the guy in the rank and file, yeah. rank and file, and just as much as to, to me holding the gun in in the countries I was, like right. it's exactly the same. Yeah, just yeah. a different, just a different battlefield. Yeah. So that's been really cool to see. And, and one, one of the uh, yeah, one of the be- the biggest takeaways for me from the extreme ownership book and the and the principles was a moment where where jo- where one of Jocko's junior officers was in a firing training mission and he could not, he was not firing. Because he was overwhelmed by all the chaos going around, and he said, "What's your problem, or what's going on?" And ultimately, he guided him to say, "Look around, relax. Number one, look around, and then make a call." You know, and I and I think that, like, especially in the in the world of finance, that's mm-hmm. I mean, it's just as chaotic. You know, just mm-hmm. as competitive, and you have bullets not not bullets that are kill you, but bullets that will wreck your your business flying at you from all different angles. And you have to be able to be of sound mind, look around, assess the situation and make a call. Yeah. You, you, you know, Murphy's law, right? When one thing goes wrong, inevitably 12 things are going to go wrong. And right. then this is, this is good. That, that falls under our, what we teach of the, or the third law of combat, which is prioritize and execute. Mm-hmm. And the only way you actually can prioritize and execute is exactly what you said. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to detach, which means, you know, relax. It's a look around, identify what what all what what twelve things need to happen, mm-hmm. and then you got to make a call and devote your resources towards that that top thing that's going to have mm-hmm. the most freeing impact on the mm-hmm. on the on mm-hmm. the overall mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, yeah, finance is no different. Like th- this guy, he's got hundreds of deals coming across his desk every week. He's got relationships with other managing directors. He's got clients of you know where they have uh, not clients. I'm sorry, they they have you know um, portfolio companies that he's in charge of. Right, that, that there's there's a ton going on. The right. only way for him to be successful is to on, on a consistent basis detach, you know, relax, look around, make a call, and 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 honestly, you know, 
that leader who was not shooting his gun, that's actually a good thing. That's actually what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You, need to detach. you need to pull yourself off the firing line because every time I get as a platoon commander, as a leader of a, of a small element, every time I get on my gun and then look through my scope, my, my point of view is only that scope. I lose, I lose perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and so very early on, you know, Jocko and Leif taught us, hey, like, if you need to shoot, shoot. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to... If there's an enemy, I'm the first person to see the enemy. Or I'm going to shoot. I'm not going to say, "Hey, guy, hey, 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 Jeff, shoot that guy." Yeah. I want to get. I want to get some. I want to be aggressive too. So right. I mean, some aspect of that. But but once the firing starts, what's my one rifle going to do? I got heavy machine guns to my mm-hmm. left and right. Like mm-hmm. I need to pull myself off, do my job, understand mm-hmm. what are the priorities for my for my for my group. Do we need? To, are we going to attack? Are we going to? Um, you know actually punch through this target or should we actually retreat and go somewhere else because mm-hmm. we can't handle it mm-hmm. that's a decision i need to be making if i'm shooting my gun i can't make a good call mm-hmm. you know i know um this has been a fun conversation i know you've got a client called you got to go help that client get some here in a little bit um <laughs> as jocko likes to say but, yeah, uh, yeah. but um I, I always wrap up with three of the same questions for each and every guest and before we do that i want to say thank you for your service and and thank you for stepping up and serving our country and, and for the sacrifice that your family has made and, and you know, for the, the sacrifice your fellow brothers and their families have made and, uh, and for taking those lessons and, and continuing to distribute them in the, in the world that is accessible to everybody. So thank you again. I, I, man, I appreciate that. And uh, it was a real honor for, for me to be able to, 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 to serve in the military and follow my, my, my father's footsteps and, and my brothers. It's uh it was it was an incredible honor. Incredible people got to work with, and um, you know, we, we talk at Echelon Front. We we a lot of people say thank you, which we're appreciative of. But you know, on the other hand, we are also grateful to you know those out there who who um, you know provide America the economic strength to do what we do. You know, because mm-hmm. that is fundamentally what gives us power in the world to project power is is our economic strength. Mm-hmm. And all those out there who are who are. Um, creating good, you know, incredible businesses that that pay taxes and then ultimately pay for me to go and do the great things I got to do. Um, we want to, you know, I, I, I'm appreciative to, to to what you guys do out there to to give us the opportunity to to you know follow a dream and and, and do what I did in the military. Absolutely. The, where is it? Where online can people connect with you specifically? Are you on social media and all that stuff? And yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know, Flynn dot Cochran. At pretty much okay. all all the sites. Okay, okay. so we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. The cool. first the first question that I ask every guest is if you could take any skill set that you currently possess, okay, so a skill you currently have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Maybe confidence. Hmm. Confidence, in not 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 in like an arrogant way, but 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 being able to not shirk when things get tough hmm. in a way, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. ability to to continue to push mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. things look overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know what the word confidence means like etymologically? I don't. With faith. Yeah, there you go. Co-fide. Yeah. Uh, the, the next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing the greatness that we're capable of achieving? Uh, we got it all figured out. Number one. Two. I got to do this alone. And three, no one's done this before. Mm. Mm. I love it. You know, it's, it's, I ask that of every, every guest and, and the, 
the one that is like universe always mentioned is that I have to do this alone. Like almost, uh, almost always that is one of them. And that, and some variation of uh, either this has already been done, so I shouldn't do it, or it's not been done before, so it's not worth doing, you know? And so it's, it's funny. I love asking that question because it's, there's certain, certain universal truths that apply, right? Yeah. The last question, there's a guy named Clay Christensen who wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Yeah. And, Very uh, familiar. He's, a, he's also an LDS guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And he, he's a Harvard professor. A Harvard too. professor took yeah, yeah. his course. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Are you a fan of the arts? Yeah, I do like the arts. Okay, I, I like, all right. yeah. so, so I'm going to ask this question kind of in, in a little bit of a different way. You, I used to just ask it by saying, How will you measure your life? And it's just, you know, it's kind of boring. So I'm spicing it up. Yeah. So um, do you prefer painting, music, or sculpture? Uh, music. Music, okay. If you were to leave instructions for a professional musician, a professional music artist, on how you would like to be depicted as it relates to how would you measure your life, what would those instructions say? What kind of elements, kind of emotion, what kind of movement, crescendos? That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I would I would have to say, uh, number just from a format perspective, um, it would have to be some sort of musical. Mm. Broadway, Broadway musical would, yes. would be the way I wanted to depict my life, where there were moments of, of, of doubt, right? Moments of doubt that ultimately got overcome by by that you know faith. Uh, mm. I think. Um, try to think of yeah. Where the crescendo? I hope that the crescendo hasn't happened yet, man. I I feel like we're still still going up. I think there's yeah. a lot more to do. Yeah, we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like a steady build, you know, some sort of steady build that ultimately gets to whatever that ultimate impact is. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that mm-hmm. is yet, man. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, hopefully, yeah. I mean, we 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 live like you know Stephen Covey's motto was "Live life in crescendo," right? So you're always. You're always arriving. You never have arrived. Yeah. You're always arriving. Yeah, that, yeah. and that's the right. Yeah, that's the right. Yeah. And that's the right way to think about it. Well, my brother from another mother, thank you for spending uh, yeah, forty-five minutes or so with me. Look forward to sharing this conversation with the world and getting you on the way to uh, making stuff happen for people. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, brother. Thank you to this week's guest, and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.